break 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 Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. When we think of Palestine, we think of the struggle for liberation against occupation, settler colonialism, and brutal military oppression. What often gets left out is how this fits into neoliberal capitalism. Joining me to delve into this topic is Karim Rabia, an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Illinois. Karim's new book, Palestine is Throwing a Party and the Whole World is Invited, Capital and State Building in the West Bank, gives us a radical and unconventional new perspective. The book shows how adopting private development and neoliberalization under Israeli occupation not only failed to promote Palestinian sovereignty, but instead it led to further subjugation to Israel. Karim, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm I'm really excited to get into this. I love the topic of your book, um, and I'm so happy we finally got got to do this. And I guess we're a good place to start uh, would be since this is not a topic that's typically discussed. Is can you describe the thesis of your book and why you chose this subject? Since it's not the usual focus when we think of the sort of drama and justice and struggle of the Palestinian conflict. Well, you know, I'll start with the second question first, which is that when I started going to Palestine for research in 2007, I was really sort of influenced by, you know, of course, my sort of politics and my identity as a diaspora Palestinian, uh, but also by academic work that really did focus on the kind of the binary between between occupation and resistance to the occupation. And there was a lot of work that strove to locate um politics and resistance and micropolitics everywhere. There was also a a trend towards work that that sort of focused on the very visible kind of infrastructural aspects of occupation, you know, the wall, the the forms of fragmentation, the, the, the checkpoints that are, you know, either solid or constantly moving around and so on. And when I got there, I became interested in sort of the the how to re-understand the political process and practices that seemed to me that they weren't resistive in the ways that we ordinarily think of them. So I, you know, I started looking at all these plans for investment, for changing forms of international aid to Palestine. I attended one of the Palestine Investors Conferences, and I started to think through the, the kind of economic relationships with Israel and what they might have to do with how Palestinian, Palestine, pardon me, uh, the West Bank in particular, is being organized in relation to Israel. And so I, I sort of struck on new forms of, um, of investment that are reconfiguring the state, the state building process, and also um, the, the sort of the ways that we're accustomed to seeing international aid come into Palestine. And I, I, I looked at a few instances where you can see those changes. And, um, and yeah, that's, that's sort of how I came to the topic and uh and and where where i ended up and just so just a really quick like summary of the thesis i guess before we get into um into more some more specific questions i mean that's so hard to answer for an anthropologist right like we're you know we're accustomed to exploring things and so on so um what's the thesis of the book well you know i i i really wanted to sort of as an anthropologist begin with a, a case and a series of cases. And I started with this one um, large 
housing development project, private housing development project called Rawabi being built uh, nine kilometers north of Ramallah. And through it, I, I show how new forms of, um, of private investment are reconfiguring things like Palestinians' relationships to the land, um, you know, forms of ownership, land ownership, forms of land tenure, legal regimes uh, that are sort of forming around privatization and investment relationships between the private sector and the PA. So, you know, I, I, I tried to show these things through this case study. And, and my, my goal was really to tell a new story about Palestine. Uh, the thesis is, some, is something, you know, along the lines of what you gave in your introduction, which is that new forms of, of, of capital investment are changing Palestinians' relationships to Palestinian politics and to Palestine itself. And, um, you know, uh, counter to the ways that the state building project is is typically described by its proponents, um, I do not. I am unconvinced that new forms of investment and uh, debt obligation are the path towards greater sovereignty for Palestinians. And then I think there there are also, pardon me, um, you know, some some sort of academic theses like like you know pushing against the idea that that Palestine is is a, a, a world historical exception of some kind, that it can be understood understood in relation to other uh, other phenomenon, other uh, situations, whether through um, through sort of comparison to other cases of, of uh, settler colonial states and territories, whether through its relationship to global capital and so on. So I think those are the those are the main two, sort of the the particular the particular argument about what's actually happening. Through these these state and investment processes, and then the kind of um, uh, sort of more general scale argument about how to understand Palestine and its relationship to the world. Those were my my sort of my goals with the book. And you know, since you just mentioned the Rawabi housing complex, which you go into quite detail about, can you describe to our listeners and viewer what is this complex and how it exemplifies the failure of neoliberalism to develop Palestine? Well, what it is, is a, a massive uh, private housing development uh, being built, a, a, you know, eventually, supposedly for about 40,000 Palestinians. Um, the so-called middle-class Palestinians, and it's being um, it's being sort of funded by a, a private developer called Bashar Masri, and by the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Qatar, uh, amongst other forms of support. Uh, you know, the PA is is pledged to support its offsite infrastructure. Um, OPEC and USAID have uh, have supported loan guarantees around the project. And it's uh, it's now sort of estimated to cost over a billion dollars, probably more. I haven't I haven't looked in a while. Um, and and it's it's you know it's it's what it sounds like. It's a it's a massive um, new town development project uh, being built in an area where there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of similar density. There are a couple of villages around it. There's a settlement not far from it. But um, but but that's what it is. And your second question about how it exemplifies the, the, the failure. Um, you know, I have, maybe this is, a, this is kind of a unnecessarily obscure academic kind of an <laughs> argument, but no, I-, I Please I, go for it. <laughs> no, no, but, but you know, but I'm not, I'm not certain that it's a failure. That's, that's you know, I, I think Interesting. that- Interesting. Huh. I think that what, you know, 
I, I'm more interested in, you know, sure, it's, there's a lot of sort of metrics of success or failure, right? You know, for example, it's taking much longer than it's supposed to have taken. It's costing much more than it's supposed to have cost, things like that. You know, it's, it's, I don't know how many people are living in there now, but I can tell you as of the, the 2000, the most recent census, there were mm-hmm. 710 people living in there. Um, and now, of course, census, uh, you know, is, is, is old information. It's Palestine. So who knows? But, um, but I think that there are, there are measures where you can say that it's, it's a success or a failure. I think that the, 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 the process really interests me because I do think it is reconfiguring relationships to land and to housing and to home in much bigger ways, relationships to, between the state and the Palestinian population in the West bank and beyond the West Bank in, in, big, in bigger ways, ways that go beyond the housing development itself. So, for example, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that is a, an ongoing problem for Palestinian developers from the, from, the, you know, from the perspective of capital is that there are a lot of um, potentially competing land claims to a, to, a, to a plot of land. You know, there can be family ownership. There's often not clear boundaries there are multiple um regimes of of titling and so on and so what this project does for the first time is it creates clear title over a large swath of land which um which has enabled the developers and their allies in the development apparatus and in banks to um to offer mortgages for mm. um for the first time and so you know so so what they did is the developers bought a patchwork of plots within the area that they want to build the pa aided them through istimlak which is something like eminent domain tied together this 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 um this plot of land and you know and then transferred ownership of the the sort of eminent domain parts to the development firm so what happened was yeah now they have a sort of an ownership basis from which they can they can do all these sort of these you know these financial things Mm-hmm. And so I think that in that regard, it's a success, right? You know, the developers are also um, changing or pushing changes in laws alongside, you know, of course, their their um, their allies in places like the World Bank, uh, changes to uh, laws around tenant protection, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. So I think in that in that regard, you know, they are they are succeeding, and there's a strange way that you know Palestine being sort of supported by international aid and, and, and international funding, like has insulated these developers. Like they're not on the hook in the way that they might be in, in, in other, in other contexts, you know? Ah, hmm. And and so I think that um, because, you know, because of, because so much of the, the funding has come from Qatar who, you know, developers kind of inside people inside the company told me like, for the most part, this is not, true all the time but for the most part there has not been you know a ton of oversight there's not been a ton of um concern uh, among the the, the Qataris about what's what's sort of going on and what's being spent there and so i think that um i guess yeah the the, the answer to your question is pretty difficult other than to say that i would sort of want to to like to broaden the scope of what counts as a success or a failure 
Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, that, yeah, no, yeah. that totally makes sense. Cause it's like, yeah. from whose perspective is it a success or a failure basically? Right. And right? in which places it can be, I mean, it can be both. It can be, it can be, uh, it can be successful in some ways and, and, and unsuccessful in others. Yeah. Well, well, so, okay. Like, like broadening it out a bit. I mean, you conclude, you're basically one of your conclusions is that this robust sort of private sector economy doesn't in fact promote sovereignty, which I think is one of your biggest um, points. That's very important. It doesn't promote sovereignty. It does not promote an independent Palestinian state, but rather this sort of private development reorients the public sector and entrenches Palestine's subordination to Israel. So I guess what I'm asking here is basically how, like your your basic conclusion about how this this neoliberalism doesn't promote sovereignty. It doesn't promote an independent Palestinian state. Quite the opposite, a state that is completely like insubordination to Israel. Um, taking that in mind, I'm wondering how this demonstrates the role that these non-state actors play in shaping policy in Palestine. I'm talking about, you know, the World Bank, right? The IMF, NGOs. And, you know, furthermore, um, not to make it too much of a complicated question, but also, you know, we can push this into how state actors actually end up playing a role in shaping policy when we think of like the EU or the US, which actually funds a lot of the non-state actors we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, first of all, I mean, I don't think that the 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 assumptions that developers or, or these actors make that um, that economic growth promotes sovereignty. I mean, I think that's just that's not that doesn't make any sense <laughs> from, the, from from the outset, right? But right. I did, I did. I mean, I think as you're as you're sort of suggesting with your question, I did really try to take the claims and the beliefs among the, the actors seriously and try to try to sort of understand. Well, what are they doing? What do they believe they're doing? What do I believe they're doing? And so on. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's the first thing is, I, I mean, I don't, for me in my set of, within my set of assumptions, it doesn't really make a ton of sense to, 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 to start to do that. Um, I mean, I think that there are also a few different ways to answer the question about how state and non-state actors or how non-state actors are impacting the state. The first is really straightforward, which is that there's a revolving door. A lot of these people go through these jobs, you know, spend some time in a ministry, go to the, the you know, the aid sector and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is that I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of work that I think that, that mine uh, engages and, and, and supplements on the ways that aid has shaped forms of, uh, political authority, forms of politics at the state level, at the government level in Palestine and, and also b- beyond it. And I think that what we're, what we're seeing in the cases that I'm talking about is that phenomenon, but privatized. Right? I, yeah. and, so, and, and so I think that, you know, you see in, in terms of the, you know, people like you, you've mentioned, USAID, the World Bank, the um, the other sort of national uh, development funds are increasingly supporting the private sector directly. So one of the things they've they've done um, is to uh, is to is to create mechanisms within the PA to distribute foreign aid to the private sector. Um, Mandy Turner and Adam Hanee are people who have, who have written about this a lot. Um, uh, a, a lending fund within the PA that basically is is going towards yeah private sector support 
aid, aid, for, aid for different kinds of uh, different kinds of projects. And so that's, I think, the 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 sort of scale above the kind of revolving door is how you know money is coming in and changing practices, priorities, and so on. I, I mean, in the book, I I, I talk about it in a, in a few different ways. I mean, I think that I tried to triangulate a lot of these problems, a lot of these questions. And one of the things that I show is how um, in one, in a national report, they, uh, they developed the idea of a, a national priority to develop affordable housing. Now, mm -hmm. what happens is the, 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 that idea, I mean, is uh, formed around the kind of private sector imperative to do it. So they say that there's a there's a housing shortage. There's a need to to um, to build to build affordable housing for Palestinians, and then all these sort of other things come up around that, like studies that that demonstrate that there's a housing shortage. Um, the idea that there's the need for the private sector to do it. You know, nowhere, of course, is there is there a plan to um, to do large-scale public housing projects, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think that there you can see answers to your questions in a couple different ways. First of all, like it's, I mean, no state is really doing a, doing a ton of large-scale public housing. I mean, this is like, this is, is right? It's logically coherent. <laughs> um, the, the, the second thing is that, um, yeah, that, that there's this formation of, uh, public sector authority and ideology and whatever around the sort of the, the imperatives of, um, of private development, of, 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 of capital. Yeah. <laughs> of capital. And of course, like all of this is also happening in the backdrop of like a housing shortage that is also to do with the fact that they've got little like less and less land to even build on because of the Israelis. So it's like it sounds to me like this awful kind of Frankenstein of like occupation mixed in with like land theft mixed in with like the awful sort of real estate development that we see in a lot of American cities by the way, like the sort of like gentrification that prices people out when you have these real estate developers come in. It's like such a nasty mix. But, you know, I wanted to move this conversation for a moment to Ramallah because, you know, in this really excellent piece that you wrote for the New Left Review back in 2018, which is actually how I learned about your book, you know, and you called this piece the remaking of Ramallah. Really excellent piece. I, I encourage people who are listening and watching to go check this out. New Left Review called Remaking Ramallah by Karim Rabia. And you explained a bit of the history of Ramallah that I was not at all aware of, that, you know, Ramallah was not always the center of the West Bank and that it developed in that way as the center of the West Bank really after the occupation and especially after the post-Oslo years. And you write, and I'm quoting you, you write, uh, the Ramallah that has emerged over the past 25 years or so is not an escape from the occupation but the outcome of its dynamic of uneven development and purposeful fragmentation. As Ramallah grows in specific directions along narrowing paths, Palestinian life and possibility are diminished elsewhere. And so I also, I mean, I, I, I just love the way you, you know, that that's condensed right there, but I also found it fitting that you described Ramallah as this kind of Palestinian green zone. So can you briefly explain the trajectory of Ramallah and how it fits into your basic overall thesis. 
I, I mean, the first thing to say just, just briefly is that uh, one of the main people I think that if uh, your viewers are going to look for other work, Lisa Taraki is the person I think who really sort of started um, started a lot of this this kind of research on Ramallah and influenced me and other people a lot. So first of all, I should give give her a, a shout out and a citation. Um, I think that the what I tried to do in that piece is to again, like I was sort of talking about with the kind of like uh, second tier academic argument. Um, mm. that I that I tried to make in the book was just sort of to draw a political economic history through, or pardon me, draw political political economy through the history of Ramallah and kind of kind of try and do a, a, a little bit of a retelling. And I think that what um, what you're what you've what you've quoted and what resonates with the book, and also what you were saying before about the the kind of like. Uh, consolidation of available land for Palestinians, like, yeah, this this is a landscape that has been shaped by occupation. The available land is, is this is a landscape that has been shaped by occupation, occupation geographies, all the Oslo legal stuff, all the kind of legal and de facto and sort of like prerogative of, of settlers and settlement. I mean, that's, that, that is a big part of the explanation for why the landscape of the West Bank looks the way it does. Um, but like, think, why is it that, why is it that like Ramallah got so developed and how did it actually like cause underdevelopment to, to surrounding areas? Because I thought that was one thing that was really interesting was I actually was not aware that this wasn't necessarily like the center of Palestinian life. Like today, that's what you hear about. That is where like everyone lives. It's where all the NGOs are based, right? It's kind of where the modern, everything modern is, all the development is there. So, like, yeah, I guess it's almost like you have a core periphery thing going on in like this microcosm of Palestine of the West Bank. Well, it's where it's where the 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 PLO returned to after Gaza and then to and then to Ramallah. And I think that what you're what you just said really points out to one of the things that I tried to to also talk about, which is the like the attention is being uh, focused there at the expense of other places, mm -hmm. right? At the expense of of, of other cities. Um, at the expense of other populations of Palestinians. And I think that the, the, um, the relative stability and security of Ramallah is because of the insecurity elsewhere. So mm -hmm. one of the things that I've been thinking, this isn't a direct answer to your question, but one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about recently is like the, the politics and the strangeness of this book coming out in May in one of the periods of uh, renewed is Israeli violence um, mm -hmm. and Palestinian resistance uh, when, you know, I have all these arguments about how I think we should understand Palestine, Palestine in different ways, blah, blah, blah. And this primary story and the one that we should be talking about is the one that I sort of make these, make all these elaborate arguments that, you know, don't, don't, don't tell us the whole thing. So, you know, but but the the Ramallah the Ramallah piece is 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 part of the answer to it, and I I did say this something like this really upfront in the book, which is that it's being developed, sort of financially and practically and materially in the ways you're talking about. Also, kind of I think socially and culturally in terms of the the sort of like image or permissibility of a normal Palestinian life can exist there because it can't exist. Certainly not in Gaza. Certainly not in 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 you know in in parts of Jerusalem uh, and in other parts of the West Bank that are more subject to 
um, you know, Israeli military incursions and settler violence and, and, and so on. And I think that it's, it's the, it's the flip side to, you know, to center of life policies or to blockade or to, to all these other things. And I think it's, there is kind of a distribution, sometimes purposeful, sometimes accidental, I don't know, um, of Palestinians into and around Ramallah. Yeah. At the, at the expense of other places. And, and so the, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to like, cause you mentioned the Palestinian authority and I'm curious, you know, why is it that the, I don't know if you have an answer to this actually, but why, why is it that the Palestinian Authority adopted this particular version of state building? And does any notion, does any notion of resistance at all, like inform, inform their version of state building and economic plans, even if obviously it hasn't worked that way? You know, I think that, um, why did they adopt this version of state building and is there resistance? The, this version of state building I mean, again, it's it's back to your 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 neoliberalism point, which is that, you know, this makes sense. This is like from their perspective, this makes sense in terms of how they understand economies and states and the relationships of of place to global capital. It's mm-hmm. it's it's coherent. I think that one thing that I did not do in the book that I I wish I had done a little bit better that um, that my friend and colleague Mezna Kato sort of sort of pushed me on when we were we were talking recently is um, is periodization. So Mezna is a is an historian and and she sort of drew this line through, which is that um, you know in 2005 there was the the pullout from Gaza, 2007 was the Fatah Hamas split, and what you start to get is the solution to the problems in Palestine from the perspective of, you know, sort of the, the governing authorities, but also the, 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 um, the funders and donor countries and so on is this, this technocratic approach. And mm-hmm. um, this is Mezna's language, not mine, but I think it makes a lot of sense is that there was, you know, there were kind of technocratic um, approaches within the PLO in terms of planning and stuff, some of which I talk about, I talk about planning after Oslo, but then you get the presentation of, of Fayyad who came from the IMF um, and sort of was a technocrat, but was doing it outside of the PLO framework and a new kind of political figure that, um, that also rehabilitated the PA at that moment. And I think that that's, that's a big part of why they adopted this, um, hmm. this, this framework also. I think those those sort of two approaches, those two, I don't not approaches necessarily, but like <laughs> gen, generalized ideological approaches, ide, you know, ideologies and practices and so on. I think that those those kind of account for it. The specific sort of like political need of donors and authorities, uh, and then also the kind of general sort of approach to states and state politics that 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 kind of makes sense to them in terms of the form forms of global capital. Yeah, can, like can you? I guess can you talk about how because the the international community, which has has made the population of the West Bank through this kind of economic state planning system has made the population of the West Bank dependent on international aid. And like, how has that basically incentivized, incentivized, excuse me, how has that dependence on international aid 
that makes the economy in the West Bank fun function, how has that incentivized the preservation of the Palestinian Authority? I mean, I think the Palestinian Authority is the is the um, is the institution and set of institutions that are formed around the aid that you're talking about. I mean, I think that like. I've thought about it like in terms of sort of various kinds of scaffolding. So the, you know, like the, the, like a lot of sort of loans are guaranteed by, by international um, aid organizations or offsite infrastructure for, for housing developments is paid for by the PA or ostensibly paid for by the PA. Like this is, this is another form of scaffolding, which is that like the aid is the thing that's keeping this whole thing together. Right. There is there is no and I mean, and it is, I think there is no productive sector. The public sector in in um, in Palestine is at least the last time I looked was the biggest employer in in the West Bank. Um, you know, so people are dependent on it for for wages, for everything. I mean, there's there's little local production. And, and you know, of course, you know that all the sort of like goods and, and stuff circulates through Israel. And I think that the the aid is the thing that's that's keeping it all together. That's sort of that's sort of holding it there in place and in suspension uh, with respect to Israel. It's and, terrible because it's like it's yeah. this entire like pacification system through economic through economics, literally, like where everybody's and you you basically point this out where like everybody's salaries just become dependent on like international capital and. It's like all mixed up and in, in I guess my question for you would be like, how does that is entrench? I mean, it's, it seems obvious, but just to like basically lay it out, how does this system entrench the Israeli occupation? Well, it's a hard question to answer because I also don't want to be too pessimistic about it all. Um, I well, think it has. That okay, we can, let me put it this way. How has it entrenched the Israeli occupation for the last 30 years? So not to be like pessimistic about the future, but it has done quite a good job of doing that over the last few decades, right? Well, I mean, in, in, in some respects, I mean, the question, the answer is really simple. It's like, it's based on the sort of like geographical consolidation that you're talking about, you know, the availability of land and so on. Like, people are getting smushed into smaller and smaller space. People are sort of like the, like, availability of like aspiration to people is in smaller, smaller places and smaller, smaller ways. And this like entire sort of um, political apparatus has been organized in sort of in, in keeping it that way. I mean, I think that the, you know, we know that there's like, Israel has its own imperatives that change all the time. Right. The occupation changes, changes forms all the time in terms of like dependence on labor, who's allowed in, who's not allowed in and so on. But one of the sort of big, I believe, imperatives, territorial imperatives of, of Israel is to, you know, to control as much land as possible with as little effort as possible. You know, I think that there's not, I mean, it's not universal, but I think in general, there's not a lot of stomach uh, for, for like, constant war on Palestinians in the West Bank. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why the West Bank doesn't look the way oh as God. it does. Um, and so I, I think that that's like, there are, there are a lot of steps and forms of practice and authority that kind of, that, that 
that do that, whether in terms of, I mean, you know, what are the, some of the, the images we have already, like in terms of consolidating people in terms of sort of scaffolding the whole thing within, with, in relation to Israel. And I think that that's, that's also a part of it. So like, how does it, how does it promote occupation? Well, it's a function of occupation. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's, I don't think it's, it's separate. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of it. Um, and I, I guess like, Internally among Palestinians, how has this neoliberal Palestine, if you will, um, how has it given rise to different classes of people, right? Some of whom actually benefit from this entrenched occupation in a way, and then others who lose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that there is, there is definitely um, resistance to it in various forms. I mean, I think that there's, you know, we've seen various kind of um anti anti-pa uh organizing or you know sort of like rising and falling sort of union organizing and and stuff like that um i think that i mean rich people and rich investors benefit that seems pretty straightforward yeah. um i think i mean they talk about it pretty explicitly um the there's like there's a complicated middle though which is that I did want to, I mean, I, in the book, I talked to people who are potential buyers uh, in, in Rawabi or people who are sort of interested in that. And I think that they're like the vision of a place that's like stable and secure and nice is appealing to a lot of people because of the, the, the sort of yeah. the ordinary circumstances are so terrible. And so, I mean, I, I think that like one of the things, one of the ways that this works and this, you know, this is, is related to, you know, sort of your question in your language about pacification is that it's, it's, it's providing for people a visible example of aspiration that happens through, um, through debt, through sort of like, I mean, primarily I think through debt relationships. So that yeah. is, that is, that is part of, part of the, the sort of the pacification thing. Um, and, and I think that, yeah. And also, if I want to take them seriously, I mean, I think it's also worth taking uh, capitalists at their word. Like, they do believe that they're doing politics. Like, their politics, of course, is not my politics. But, like, you know, in the – I went to the um, – the second, the second Palestine Investors Conference, and I wrote about this a, a little bit in the in the book. But you know, I was it was it was really strange being you know myself not uh, not an investor, not somebody <laughs> I'm sad to say with very much money. But, um, really, but, academia know, isn't the way to go for that. <laughs> believe it or not, um, and so so what happened is you know they're talking about like. Um, they're talking about all this investment potential, which I think they're telling the truth. I think that's probably right. I think people are making money. But then they get this sort of like national um, nationalist political element to it, which is like, I mean, if you're a millionaire or however much money these people have, I have no idea, um, who's Palestinian. I mean, they, they're, they're using language and talking about it in terms of uh, like, they're making these calculations, but they're also talking about it in terms of a sacrifice. Like they're like, we could make mo more money elsewhere. You know, we could, we could do, we could but do we're more. like doing our, yeah. Like we're doing a patriotic duty to like put our money into Palestine rather than like exactly. know, Chicago or something. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so what they said, what they said, and which I, I mentioned in, in the book is like, um, you know, this one talk in particular where the guy was kind of trying to convince people 
of the like the righteousness, the sort of like political duty righteousness of it, uh, but then also the um, I mean, how do you say like the financial viability of it or something? And he's yeah. saying like, make no mistake, there's re there are returns to be made here. He kept on saying this over and over again, like we there are returns to be made here. Which was, which was, I mean, really noticeable to me for the obvious reason that this is not typically how Palestinians talk about return. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, <laughs> that's a good, yeah, that's a good way to put that, right? And I mean, and yeah. I, but I, I don't, I don't even, I don't even think that he was, he wasn't being ironic, um, and it didn't even seem like he was purposefully trying to use that language. It was just like the sensible way of describing this for him, mm -hmm. you know, from the perspective of As the a capitalist. capitalist yeah. 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 And so I think that like there, there is this sort of, there are, there are so many different tensions and, and, and pushes and pulls of politics. The issue with the sort of case studies that I'm talking about is that those people, I mean, exactly because of what you were talking about and what you pointed out, um, have, access and authority and positions and able to remake the government, able to remake things at scale, able to bring in a billion dollars and build a place for 40,000 people and negotiate with the Israelis about its specifics and so on. Um, but I mean, yeah, and I think, so I think that there are, there are so many different kinds of, of, of politics and, and I did try to, um, you know, not just take that and say like, this is accommodationist or whatever. Yeah. But just you're more just, generous. You know, you're more generous than most would be, but yeah, I see where you're going at. But I don't yeah. think it's, I don't think it's generosity. I mean, I do, I do. I mean, like I do at the at times sort of, you know, make my express my politics pretty clearly. It's not about trying to just be generous. It's trying to understand, at least that's how I, I think of it. It was for me, it was my way of trying to understand how all these different actors are, approaching and treating and reshaping this thing called Palestine and what it might mean for Palestine itself and Palestinians uh, in general. That was, that was the, yeah. that was the sort of the, the goal. You know, I'm just thinking to myself, like um, given what you said, like, I wonder if also this is like a product of the, I don't want to say defeat because there is obviously still a left, but the preponderance of capitalists at the forefront of the Palestinian national cause. Um, and I think it's not just restricted to Palestine. Like you could see that in other cases where, uh, you know, there's like national liberation movements or like anti-colonial movements that went in a capitalist direction. And as a result, that limits them in their ability to protect their sovereignty. Like I can see that in a lot of instances, you know, and thinking about the collapse of the like global left after, you know, in 1991, really. Um, and how that, it really does. It, it limits you completely in, and how you can deal with, I think what the main culprit is, which is this global imperialist project that Israel's all wrapped up in. Um, and I guess that's just my personal take on it, but you know, I, I'm curious, what are there are there lessons that we can draw you know from this that apply elsewhere or is it do you think unique to palestine to specifically the west bank because it's under occupation this kind of system that we're talking about both i mean i think there are elements that are specific to palestine like you know the stuff about the ways the particular ways that land ownership and consolidation and things like that work the existence 
of the, the the forms of occupation that sort of political practice has to has to move around. But I mean, I think that you're you're right that I don't think it's specific to Palestine, and and I I don't want I I I mean I I try pretty hard not to suggest that you know because I think that there are I I think that I I mean I think that you and I agree and we share the orientation that like the sort of primary binding force and set of institutions and practices and phenomenon and cultural cultural lives is this this sort of like world making thing called capitalism you know mm-hmm. and part of the difficulty is like it's actually really hard to say like capitalism does this specific thing or that specific thing or yeah. neoliberalism happens at this point you know and i i think that that what happens is 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 what i was trying to sort of explore um because I care about Palestine, because I'm a leftist, because I'm myself Palestinian, was the case in Palestine, right? But I think right. that I think that the goal, um, a goal I have in my approach, maybe it's maybe it's not totally explicit in in the the work, but is is to think Palestine across different kinds of contexts, right? You no, know, I think that definitely yeah. worked. By the way, because yeah. as I was reading, like I I can actually like envision. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm just mm-hmm. thinking like. As even if you're not saying this also happens here, it sounds so familiar. Yeah, like it sounds so familiar. Yeah, go ahead. You know, and I think that like one of the things that I I, I sort of I had in mind is I remember at one point when I was sort of doing field research, I, I was talking to some people and they 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 talked about like capitalism penetrating the traditional landscape of Palestine. That that was the language they used, and for me, that approach just like doesn't doesn't cover what is happening there. I mean, capitalism has existed in Palestine. It continues to exist in Palestine. You know, questions of tradition are very complicated, which I I sort of talk about some in the book also. And I I wanted to to sort of, I guess, more or less talk about like the relationships between the condition of occupation and the sort of like the world of of capital that we all live inextricably in. And I think that, um, and, and then trying to sort of, show what it's doing but the goal of course is not just to just to talk about you know these things that suck it's you know capitalism (laughs) and whatever the goal is the goal is also to to sort of like start to start to sort of suggest other ways of doing things you know and i and i do want to just say this one thing which is like a lot of times we all get to the end of a book, especially an academic book, because academics are so loath to say anything. And I had this problem also. Um, like, what's next? What do we What do we do about this? And I and I actually like I want to. I personally want to reject that a little bit, not just because I'm an academic, but because um, I think that like I I believe and I hope that my work is sort of engaged with 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 politics and with movement movement politics. But like, I'm not an organizer. I'm not Mm. living there. It's not really up to me, you know? And I think that, and I think that it's, it's, there are much better people to, to be listening to on those on, on sort of like the what's next or how, how should organizing look. But I think, and I hope what I, what I have done is to sort of like lay, lay out some of the kind of like um, some of the kind of richer, better questions, questions that I think are a little bit more appropriate and sort of might, might drive in, in directions towards um towards forms of struggle 
And on that note, I mean, I, I know you, you know, you noted you're not an organizer, you're an academic and you did a lot of research for this. So can you just kind of give us an idea of like what your time conducting the research was like? Was it difficult? Was it dangerous to do? Um, and since several years have passed, you know, has that situation changed? But I guess the danger element, maybe it wasn't dangerous at all. I don't know. But it's Palestine is not your Palestinian, first of all. So I don't know, you know, you visited, like, it, was it difficult to get to where you needed to go and to talk to who you wanted to talk to, to sort of collect the information that you did? Well, you know, the arguments about Ramallah that we were talking about before might have might have been really shaped by the, the experience of living there. And, mm. you know, the kind of... Uh, stability and, and certainty that you experience. I mean, it was like, it was very rare that you would see, um, you know, the, the Israeli military within Ramallah and, you know, in the, in the, the, the sort of probably all told few years that I lived there. Um, I saw them there, you know, just a handful of times. Um, it is, it, it did really feel, um, separate, a little bit separate, a little bit distant, a little bit distant is maybe the best way to put it. You know, and then there's a lot of, a lot of sort of ideas and work and, and art being made uh, at that time around the idea of the Ramallah bubble. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, um, I, I mean, the, my experience of, of being there um, as somebody who presents as a diaspora Palestinian who carries an American passport. My, the, the, the only times that I felt real danger were um, when I had to uh, engage the uh, occupying forces. I mean, when I was sort of routinely held at checkpoints, you know, the airport obviously is a nightmare for Palestinians, things like that. Um, I, and so I think that that I, I did not feel much danger, no. Um, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But but that's but that's a but that's a Ramallah phenomenon. I mean, I think that that's, that's so interesting that you, yeah. it's a place you can just go. So I've personally never been to Palestine. Uh -huh. um, I would love to go there at some point. But it's so interesting how the, it really has. It really is this like bubble. I mean, all the horror, horrors that you hear on a daily basis. There's just like this area where it doesn't really apply, and that's where a lot of the development is happening. And that's where this image of the Palestinian state is. And that, that is a really interesting dynamic. Um, go ahead. If you want to add to that? But, but I mean, that was also, that was also the time that I was living there. I mean, I think that more recently there have been some, some clashes and demonstrations. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think that, uh, I think that COVID has been especially bad in Palestine. I mean, I think that, that, you know, it's, it might be distant, but I think it's never fully stable which is also why, you know, there's like the, the presentation of, of aspiration through like the idea of stable places is appealing to people or, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I did in the, the research is, I mean, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't start wanting to, to, to look at Rawabi and cite this, um, this analysis and set arguments there. I mean, I was, I wanted to look at other forms of kind of the, economic practices and economic geographies between between the West Bank and Israel. And then at the time, the Sudawabi thing sort of started to pierce the public uh, consciousness. They started to put up signs all on the Birzit road pointing towards it. Um, and then it just sort of struck me as like, this is a place where I think I can see all the things that I'm interested in seeing. So at the end of the day, I'm not that interested in Rawabi 
itself. <laughs> I'm interested yeah. in the ways that it sh- it's it allows us to show privatization, state politics, things like that. So I mean, I did I did um, interviews. It was it was interview based. I mean, I, I'm I'm uh, an anthropologist and ethnographer. I interviewed real estate developers and finance capital people and bank people and friends and ordinary Palestinians and potential buyers and. Um, you know, planners in the PA, uh, people in the um, the land authority, stuff like that. So, so uh, you know, essentially just trying to triangulate around these questions by talking to all these different people. Um, and I was there for um, for like a year and a half uh, for the main part of research, and then went back one or two or sometimes three or sometimes zero times a year for um for <laughs> probably 10 years i haven't been back wow. I, was supposed, I was supposed to go back um right before covid and i didn't uh, and then um so i haven't i haven't been for a while i hope to go when it is feasible and um safe to do so uh but yeah but so the, i i it was it was interview based and i gotcha I lived there for some time well, Karim Rivia, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of Illinois. Where can people follow your work? Uh, I have a website, actually. Um, <laughs> KareemRabia.com, K-A-R-E-E-M-R-A-B-I-E.com. Um, I guess that's the primary one. I, uh, I'm not very active on Twitter, but I have that too. Uh, K-M-R-A-B-I-E. Um, those, are, those are the places. And of course, uh, mention, we'll mention your book one more time, which is an excellent read, Palestine is Throwing a Party and the Whole World is Invited, Capital and State Building in the West Bank. Kareem, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me.